several years ago, I was living and working in the country of Haiti, and there are some challenges that go along with living there, and one of them was communicating with people here in the U.S. when you needed something. So when I was working there, I was also trying to finish a seminary degree. I still had one class left before I was actually done, and I realized that I was fast approaching the deadline. If I didn't finish it within the next 12 months, uh, I'd essentially have to start over on my degree. So I'd reached out to the school by email, and I tried to figure out whatever I could to resolve this, and it seemed like I just kept coming to a dead end, no matter who I talked to or what I asked. So one day I'm at lunch, uh, and I'm having lunch with some of the other people that I work with, and there were some visitors who had come, and they were just coming to check out and see what was happening in the ministry there, and they were sitting at the table with us, and one guy sitting across the table I didn't know, and I asked him his name, and he said his name was Don. I said, hey, Don, I said, what do you do? He said, I'm the registrar for Cincinnati Christian Seminary. So there's one person on the planet that was truly capable of resolving the issue that I had, and he's sitting right across the table from me, captive audience. So I've looked back at that moment many times, and I thought, you know, I was just one question away from totally missing it. If I never just said, hey, Don, what do you do? We would have spent the whole week, like two ships passing in the night, and I never would have known that the one person that could have resolved it was sitting right there with me. There's nothing better than finding the right person at the exact right time. So as we uh, begin this new series, the idea behind it is trying to figure out how to describe who we are behind the what we do. So if you could take what we're all about and just kind of put it into a hand, you would say it like this. Westridge exists to help people encounter, embrace, and embody the radical love of God. So today, we're going to look at at that word encounter and what that means in this whole idea of experiencing the radical love of God. And to do that, we're going to look at a couple stories of some people who encountered God and to see from their story if there's something that we resonate with, something that helps us to understand what that encounter looks like and what it means to actually take that step. So we're going to look first at the story of a man by the name of Matthew. And if you have heard or know anything about the Bible, you've probably heard that name before. He's the one who wrote the first book in the New Testament. And he was also one of the people who was part of the 12 followers of Jesus that were trained by Jesus to continue his mission after Jesus had left. So the backstory to Matthew really has some significance for us in understanding what that moment of encounter actually looks like. Matthew was Jewish, and because he was Jewish, he probably would have experienced pretty much the same thing that any young Jewish boy would have. So when you're about five or six years old, you would begin the first level of school in the Jewish educational system. It was called Bet Sefer. And it actually means house of the book. And the book was literally 
the law of Moses, <clears throat> the Torah, or what we would know as the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So they would go to class, and the rabbis would be teaching them, and they would spend their time learning about these five books, but more importantly, most of them probably had the Torah memorized by the time they'd finished those years of training. Now, just for perspective, sometimes we think it's difficult just to read those books. Matthew would have memorized the first 187 chapters of the Bible. So he's in it. He has definitely had very intense religious instruction. But somewhere along the way, I think it's safe to say that Matthew lost those roots and walked away from his faith. By the time we catch up with Matthew in the story of the Bible, Matthew is a tax collector. And that's significant for a couple of reasons. So Matthew was living in Israel as a Jew, the Jewish nation, and Rome had actually conquered Israel. So they were essentially asking every person to pay a tax to fund what Rome wanted to do in their country, and people are literally paying their money to an enemy state. The thing about Matthew is he was a tax collector taking money from his own people to give to this enemy state of Rome. There's probably not a more descript way to say traitor than that. So the thing is, Matthew, because of what he's chosen, this life of being a tax collector, I think you could say safely he has no friends, no community, no life. But there's something more than just a political alignment that he has going there. By choosing to be a tax collector, he had essentially alienated or isolated himself from any part of Jewish worship. Because he was a tax collector, he was considered unclean, so he couldn't even come into the temple, much less participate in any of the worship services or anything that happened in the temple. So it's safe to say, I think, that Matthew has left the faith that he grew up with. And I want to look just for a minute at the story that he tells himself, Matthew chapter 9. He tells about the encounter that he has with Jesus. So Matthew 9, beginning in verse 9. It says, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer a sacrifice. For I have come to call those who, excuse, I have come to call those not who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. So what is it that we see in this moment of encounter with Matthew? 
Well, let me start by saying this. I have a hard time believing that this was his one and only encounter. I have to believe that along the way, Matthew has seen or experienced Jesus in some way. He was a very popular rabbi. He had a huge following, and he had huge influence in Israel. So as Matthew was going about his daily business of collecting taxes, it seems very likely that he would have heard Jesus teach. Maybe he saw Jesus heal someone who was blind or lame, or he saw people, uh, people like 5,000 people fed in a miraculous way by Jesus. So there were these moments that he had undoubtedly seen and heard about Jesus, and whatever it was had captured his attention and piqued his interest because he had literally stood up and walked away from a very lucrative business. I have a hard time believing that it was just a stranger, hey, Matthew, come follow me, and he walks away from everything without having some idea of who this Jesus is. I feel like that's probably the case for us as well. There are moments in our life when we may feel the presence of God. We may sense that God is with us or near us, or we may actually have a moment when we feel like there's something missing, and we sense that it's actually God sort of tugging on our heart, showing and revealing himself to us. And when you look back and you see those moments, you might think, you know, it, it felt like, it seemed like maybe that was God. And if it seemed like that was God, it probably was. But those are different than this one moment. There is also a moment when there is a moment that everything changes. And in those kinds of encounters, you realize that you're standing in the moment that requires a definitive choice on your part, that if you step into it by faith means it's going to change your life forever. Let me just say for clarity, if, if you are not sure that you've had that moment, it's safe to say that you haven't. And what I mean by that is, this is one of those moments that is an unforgettable, life-changing moment. It'd be sort of like asking yourself, am I married? It's not the kind of thing that you forget when it's such a pivotal, a pivotal watershed moment that changes everything in your life. The other thing that I think we see in the story with Matthew is what he goes about in that process of religious education. So what happened early in life was, as I mentioned, he was very intensely involved in the process of learning the Torah. For years, he has studied it. He'd grown, maybe you could say we, he had grown up in church, so to speak. He'd experienced all of the religious experiences, probably with his parents and the temple or synagogue. And now, for some reason, at some point, Matthew appears to have walked away from his faith. And just as important, I think that story is the same story for many of us. Some of us grew up going to church. We had those experiences when we were young. Maybe we went to church with our parents 
And maybe we were even in those religious classes where we learned a lot of stuff about religion, but at some point, probably right around or soon after high school, we sort of walked away. We became disconnected from anything to do with our faith. And we were fine with it until we weren't. Because there, there was likely a moment in your life when you lost someone that you loved. And all of a sudden, these, this flood of feelings comes over you, and now you're wondering about God and the afterlife and the purpose of life. Or it's possible that maybe a lot like Matthew, you just had this, this feeling of severe loneliness. And it leaves us feeling very, very empty. I like how Brennan Manning described that feeling. He says, I'm convinced that without a gut-level experience of our profound spiritual emptiness, it's not possible to encounter the living God. And maybe, for some of us, it wasn't a moment of crisis like that. Maybe a baby was born into our family, and all of a sudden, we're sort of overwhelmed with a different kind of feeling, like, oh my goodness, like, I might be responsible to help this one kid know the most important thing of life, which very well might be having a relationship with God. And there's this wake-up moment when we recognize this is significant. So you sort of have to ask yourself, do I see myself in Matthew's story? Do I see me in that life-changing moment that is pivotal, pivotal and, and life-changing that changes everything forever? I would say that maybe, maybe it's possible that that encounter is right in front of you. Not just in this moment, but in your life. But I want to say, as compelling as Matthew's story is, that really isn't the story of all of us. And I want to look at the story of another man, a man by the name of Cornelius. This is from the book of Acts. And if you look in Acts chapter 10, you will see the story of this man who was a Roman military officer. And because he was Roman, he probably very likely was exposed to all kinds of gods and all kinds of worship experiences in his childhood. Maybe he dabbled in this, dabbled in that, or maybe wasn't really connected to anything at all. But Rome, as a nation, was unique because when they conquered another nation, they allowed that nation to continue to worship God as they had before. So this Roman officer is now in the nation of Israel, Matthew's country, and he's witnessing how these Jewish people interact with their God. And more than just witnessing, he's actually saying, you know, I'm curious. I think I want to choose to follow this God. If you look in Acts chapter 10, we're going to look at this, this moment of encounter that Cornelius has. Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. It says, in Caesarea... 
there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius who was a captain of the Italian regiment. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. One afternoon, about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said. Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, sir? He asked the angel. And the angel replied, your gifts, your prayers and your gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He's staying with Simon, a tanner who lives near the seashore. As soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier, one of his personal attendants. He told them what had happened and sent them off to Joppa. So here when it says that Cornelius was God-fearing, that means he's chosen this God, he's doing his best to follow the moral teachings of this God, and he's practicing all the good that he knows to do. But he has not yet had that moment when he has actually experienced the fullness of who God is and that he is all in. There's still a sense of searching in him. Very, very different than the story of Matthew. Cornelius did not have religious training. He didn't have those experiences in the temple or synagogue. He didn't have parents who had taken him religiously along the way to teach him and to show him. But he had chosen this God of the Bible, and I think one thing it's safe to say is he was trying. You have to believe that Cornelius was thinking, if I can do enough good stuff, maybe I can be accepted by this God that the Jews follow. So God is orchestrating an encounter that would truly change Cornelius and his family forever. Cornelius followed the instructions, and he had sent for someone to come and tell him the rest of the story about Jesus. So while Cornelius is waiting, God is also behind the scenes doing something in the life of someone else that is the man we know as Peter, the apostle Peter, the famous Peter that we know well from the Bible. And this man, Peter, was given a vision, and this vision was a dream where he literally explains, God explains to Peter that Cornelius is going to have a special encounter, and Peter is going to participate in it. So continuing on in the story, Acts chapter 10 Go to verse 19, and it says, Meanwhile, as Peter was puzzling over this vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, Three men have come looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and go with them without hesitation. Don't worry, for I have sent them. So Peter went down and said, I'm the man you're looking for. Why have you come? They said, we were sent by Cornelius, a Roman officer. He's a devout and God-fearing man, well-respected by all the Jews. A holy angel instructed him to summon you to his house so that he can hear your message. So Peter goes with these people back to Caesarea, where Cornelius lives. And when he arrives, Peter says, God talked to me about you. God told me that there is going to be a moment where something incredible is going to happen. 
and it will change your life forever. And then Peter says, tell me your story. And Cornelius says, well, actually, here's what happened. God sent an angel, and he said that I should come and find you. And that when we were together, that you would be the one who would tell me the rest of the story about Jesus. So here we are, Peter, like, tell me the rest of the story. So Peter begins, and he tells very simply in just a few paragraphs, he wraps up and summarizes the story of Jesus by saying, he's the one who came to this earth, and he taught, and he healed. He was crucified in Jerusalem, but then on the third day, he rose again, and many of us, including me, Peter, we witnessed him after he had risen from the dead. And the bottom line is this, is this is the one who came to save all people, all people from their sins. While Peter is telling this story of Jesus to Cornelius, God literally sends down the Holy Spirit on Cornelius and his family, and there is a life-changing moment and encounter when they experience this, this moment of God unlike anything else, which literally changes their life forever, but it also explains to the entire world that anyone, even non-Jewish people, which was revolutionary at that time, even non-Jewish people can be a part of this thing that we call Christianity. They can follow God and be a part of this movement. Some of us might feel like we fit more with the story of Cornelius. Maybe we don't have that background of going to church and religious instruction and participating in some sort of something that gave us a connection to God and the church when we were young. This quote from Ann Voskamp says, and I feel like she's speaking maybe about the life of Cornelius, but maybe even the life of some of us when she says, God doesn't want to number your failures or count your accomplishments as much as he wants you to have an encounter with him. So God shows up, and we buy in, and everything changes forever. So the the truth is, my story isn't really like Matthew or Cornelius exactly. So when I was a kid, I did grow up in the church with some of that religious instruction. And every week in the service that we had, we would have a moment where the pastor or whoever is teaching would say, if you want to choose Jesus, you just come right down here to the front and we'll have a moment when you can accept him. So I talked to my dad and and I realized that this is something that I wanted to do. I'd heard the stories. I knew who Jesus was. I knew that I had sinned. And I wanted to be saved from those sins. And so I came forward and I received Jesus. And it was one of those moments. But what I have to tell you is I kind of got stuck right there. So literally for 10 years, I enjoyed the idea that I was saved, that I knew who Jesus was. But there was nothing growing and developing my faith. And 10 years later, I'm at this Christian camp, and for the first time, this guy challenges me in a way like I'd never been challenged before. Up until then, those 10 years, I'd sort of felt this this sense of guilt and fear. 
Guilt of feeling like, I- I'm just not doing enough stuff, enough of the good stuff. And fear that like, if God catches me doing something bad, I'm in big trouble. It's almost like th- there, was, there was two really significant encounters with God in my life that helped me put everything together and understand the really complete package of what it means to have a relationship with God, to be saved and to choose to follow Him with all of your life. So I, I've got a couple of what-if questions for you. Just really honestly, let me ask you, what if? What if God has orchestrated things so that He's right there and there is an encounter that you can step into? Would you know it? Or maybe God has sort of orchestrated some of those encounters and you've literally refused because you know that if you say yes, you're saying yes to a life change that you're not quite sure you want to take on right now. And maybe you've pushed that to the side. But the truth is, and the the big question is this, what if? What if God's right across the table from you? What if God's there, the moment is ready, and he's asking you, are you ready to step into a moment when you choose me forever and always? I want to leave you with a challenge, and that is this. Especially if you've never had that life-changing moment, I want you to think about praying this. It's more of a question. God, will you show up in a way that I know it's you and will you help keep my eyes open so I can recognize you when you do? There's this verse that I love in Ecclesiastes. And it says that God has sort of planted eternity in our hearts. In other words, he's given us this head start He's made everything available to make sure that we're lo- we know we're loved, that we're invited, that He's waiting for us. You know, one of the things that is extremely important when you talk about Westridge and what we do here, these are moments just like this when we're counting on God to show up and for all of us to encounter God. No matter where you are in that journey, it never stops. You don't, be, you don't check that box and say, I've, I've had my big moment, check. You continue to encounter God all along the way and you encounter it in moments like these. You encounter it in moments when you're together with a small group. Our kids are encountering it right now. You, you might call that childcare, but it's far from childcare. They are encountering and experiencing God just like you are in a way they can understand. That's what we're about. That's what we want you to experience here and everywhere. It doesn't just happen when you're with church people. It happens anywhere. People experience God in nature. People experience God with other people. Incredible ways that God moves to bring us to those moments when we encounter him and it becomes a life-changing moment. The fact that God has implanted in each one of us the desire to encounter him is probably the best gift that we could have been given.